this is an identity conflict. This isn't a religious conflict. This isn't an ancient conflict. This is a conflict of identity, nationalism, and land. And religion plays a role, but that's not the main issue here. And both fundamentally, Palestinian and Israelis' identity directly threaten each other. And that is the hard, hard, hard thing here. They're not just physical threats. Their very existence threatens each other's identities. This is Sarah and Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations. Thank you so much for joining us for a new episode of Pantsuit Politics. Like the title of today's episode is Fraught. We are talking about the CDC's updated vaccine guidance. We are going to talk about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. We're bringing on our friend and Western Asia expert, Carrie Anderson, to walk us through what's going on in that region of the world in greater depth. And at the end, we're going to talk about church. So it's just all the things in one place And I wanted to just start by telling you about an experience I had this weekend, because I know we have had several challenging episodes lately. I went to my church in person yesterday. I've been several times, so it wasn't my first time back, but we are still getting used to what church looks like in this particular season. And my daughter, Ellen, who is five, was thirsty, then she was hungry, and then she was bored and ready to go home. She was basically like having an angry and verbose octopus sitting on top of me for most of the service. And the sermon just happened to be about how very important it is to clear your life of noise so that you can meet God in silence. (laughs) And I'm just here to tell you that even though it was a lovely message, it did not work for me in my life at this particular moment. And that was hard. I wasn't angry about it. Nothing that was preached was wrong at all. It was just really hard to hear. And so I wanted to just acknowledge that we've had some conversations here lately that are not meeting some of you where you are, and we totally understand that. And the other thing that I thought about after the church service was that it is so important to me to choose to put myself in places where people don't meet me where I am. It is Mm. so important to me to continue to show up in those places and to think through What is it in my mind that rejects this right now? And why is it making me feel this way? And what does that mean for my relationships with these people? And ultimately, I think going to church and hearing a sermon that doesn't meet you where you are is a really beautiful, important part of being a member of the church. And so not at all to compare what we do here to church, of course, but just to say, continuing to show up in community, understanding that sometimes we meet that resistance to me is a really wonderful thing, and I appreciate y'all doing it. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
We are special breakfast people here at Pantsuit Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. The goal was not... We will elect a Democratic president and then we will all agree. It is to get good, competent leadership to allow space to have these conversations, which we weren't capable of having through the four years of the Trump administration because everything, the stakes were felt so high constantly that, you know, the emphasis had to be on agreement at all costs. And I think now that the stakes are still very, very high, but it does feel like there's space for conversation and disagreement and to work on each other again. And I like that. I think that's really important. Now, I will say, as we start talking about the CDC, that I don't feel like the CDC has met us where we are one single time during this entire pandemic. I am not busting on the people who have made massive sacrifices throughout the entirety of the pandemic, the people who work in the CDC, who worked long hours under incredible stress. That's not what I'm talking about, but I am talking about that once we all get our feet underneath us and have some space to think through what worked and what didn't work, I think uh, we should start with the CDC because I think there's a lot there that's not working. I listened to Michael Lewis, who has a new book coming out on the Ezra Klein show, and he was talking about that the CDC wasn't run by political appointees for a very long time. That shifted during the Carter administration. His case, and he makes it quite well, is that that has been a huge detriment to the organization. And I think that's a conversation we should have because it feels like we're either dragging the CDC behind us or with this latest guidance that people, vaccinated people don't need to wear masks, like they're giving us whiplash. And it just feels like they 
cannot get the sort of social science aspect of this messaging right, no matter how hard they try. And perhaps they shouldn't. I keep thinking about this. It is really important to me that the CDC is the place that says exactly what Dr. Walensky just said. Hey, we've done some research. We've looked at the data. We've scrubbed it hard. And we feel really confident about the efficacy of these vaccines. I'm not sure then going to the policy is the right next step. I almost feel, and I can't believe I'm arguing for like the creation of more government agencies, but there (laughs) is a point where I think it's a different set of considerations. Somebody needs to be the pure science and somebody needs to be able to overlay the science onto policy and onto our federalist system. Because I think the biggest problem with what the CDC just did was the absence of coordination with states. Mm -hmm. This really hung some governors out to dry and governors that have tried to be very cooperative with the federal government throughout the pandemic. And so, you know, I just did a nightly nuance on the situation at the southern border with unaccompanied minors. And my conclusion The more I work through that issue is that using the Department of Homeland Security and the Department of Health and Human Services to greet, care for, process, and reunite families is kind of like going into my kitchen and grabbing a meat thermometer and a butcher knife to go construct a building outside my house. It's just they're the wrong tools. And we're asking too many things of these government agencies. And that's really how I look at the CDC right now. It needs a narrower purpose, I think. Well, I think it's big enough and it has a history enough that you could reformulate the organization. You know, you have an arm of the organization that is very focused on science. And then you have an arm of the organization that is focused on public health and public health persuasion, which I think is like this whole scene that we are recognizing is very difficult. Now, I get what they're. Let me just say this, too. I understand what they're doing here. I just don't think they're articulating it. We talked about this in our last conversation. The presence of the vaccines changes this conversation dramatically. The presence of vaccines that are this efficacious means that we are shifting from societal procedures to individual risk assessment. When there were no vaccines and the only strategy we had was a group strategy, (laughs) then that was a very different space than now where we have vaccines and we can protect people and we don't have to depend solely on group strategies. And I just think that that we have not articulated that clearly enough. That has not been something that as a society we're shifting towards and we're really working on. And so it just feels like when we abandon a group strategy that everyone feels like, well, we don't have any strategies. No, no. We have a very, very, very effective strategy through the vaccines. That's why the numbers are bottoming out, right? And I think that that's just – but that's something we have to, like, really, really talk about. And I totally agree. I mean, that conversation aside, this – Guidance not only left governors who have worked so hard and mayors who have worked so hard out to dry, but it left like big old corporations who I don't spend a lot of time worrying about, but like the Walmarts of the world and the Targets of the world, in particular, their frontline employees in a really, really difficult position. Because again, it's like it's this honor system, which is really. That's impossible. That's impossible, right? And I mean, there's a part of me that's like, should we sweat this too much? The people who weren't going to wear masks, 
because they are defiant about wearing masks. They haven't worn masks. They weren't going to wear masks. They're not going to wear masks. The masks are off the table for those people. We all know it. So we have been able to control and increasingly control the virus through vaccines, even in the presence of these people who are defiantly anti-mask. Nothing coming out of the CDC is going to change their minds. Well, and I am ready to stop asking frontline workers to try to police that behavior. Right. Because that is that's one of the least fair things that have happened. There's been a lot of unfairness through COVID-19, but asking somebody who works at Walmart to police mask wearing is way up at the top of the list. I think that shift, Sarah, from collective mindset to individual mindset is made infinitely harder by the fact that we've never had a coherent ethical, philosophical framework that tells us to what degree we balance those objectives Mm -hmm. throughout the pandemic. Because the issue at the beginning of the pandemic was that many of us rapidly snapped in a whiplash kind of way, exactly what we're experiencing now, in a whiplash kind of way, so many of us rapidly snapped from an individualistic society to a collectivist mindset Yeah, where we said, I am willing to stay at home. I am willing to not do things. I am willing to wear a mask. I'm willing to change damn near every aspect of my life to protect other people, which is something I am rarely asked to do to any discernible degree. Mm-hmm. And we battled about that because we had people saying, whoa, I am still an individualist mindset and I'm going to stay there. And you have not made the case to me that switching to a collectivist mindset makes sense. And now we're going to asking everybody to be in that more individual risk assessment place. And that's a hard turn for people who have for over a year really shifted to the collectivist place and understanding that as effective as the vaccines are, We have not sufficiently answered questions for parents. We have not sufficiently answered questions for parents of immunocompromised children who are not yet eligible for the vaccine. We have not effectively answered questions for people who, for whatever reason, are not medically able to get the vaccine. And without that guidance, turning the switch again back to individualism, I understand why that's really hard for people. What bothers me in the coverage is when they are asking Joe or Jane Doe on the street, how they feel about this. We have no background information about that. You know, and I think that's what's so difficult, too, because the reality for me as an individual who is fully vaccinated, even with small children in my house, I carry no anxiety about catching COVID. When I say I trust the science of these vaccines, I said I mean it. I would roll into a MAGA rally without a mask on and not think twice about it. I'm just going to be honest with you. That's where I'm at with these vaccines. And so when I'm hearing people say, well, it was too early, I'm just like, well, but who, 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 where are you coming from with that? And I don't mean like to disagree with it. I just mean like, I just think that this is very complicated because if you are still centering your anxiety, if you are still centering your risk assessment as a doubly vaccinated person on the behaviors of other people, then I, 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 I'm confused by that. I don't for do you. that anymore. For right. you, for right? You. Not for like, somebody else right. in your household. For you. Right. For you. If you are out, like, I, because I just, once I got both vaccinations, I'm going to be honest with you, I stopped thinking about other people's behavior because I think that they're, now, I think in my personal risk. Now, to the collectivist thing, that's not all the way done, right? So my 12-year-old son got a vaccine on his 12th birthday, Sunday. Thrilled. Not because I'm honestly worried about his risk from COVID, because let me be clear, I'm not. I think that COVID is incredibly low risk for children. But to me, the collectivist choice was, even though it's low risk, 
and I believe the vaccines are also very low risk, that was still the collective right choice to do, right? Because I do want a space where my kids couldn't spread it, that we're not, that we're still getting closer and closer to, if not herd immunity, something that protects more and more members of the population who maybe can't get the vaccine. And so I'm happy to make that choice for my kids. And when it is safe and out there in the public for my six-year-old and my almost 10-year-old, we will be first in line again. So I think there's still collectivist. That's what, right. We're, we're all switching gears constantly. Collective, individual. Am I making this assessment for my children? Am I making that assessment for myself? And I think the CDC, instead of helping guide us through that complicated risk assessment, just dumped more information on people who are already overwhelmed with all these different factors to consider when they're making that individual risk assessment. And I do not think that everyone is where you are, Sarah. I, do, I hear mm-hmm. in our no, audience not. that I people know. are not unburdened about other people's choices for their own personal risks by the vaccine. And that's OK. I'm not mad at anybody about that. I think that's normal. Every mm-hmm. aspect of risk assessment, somebody out there is going to be more conservative than I, than right. I am and somebody is going to be w- more open to taking on risk than I am. That's such a good point. I think you should like, let's just double down on that emphasis. I think that's so important. We say risk assessment and we hear like test as if there's one right answer. And there is not. It is an individual assessment and therefore will be different for every individual. I think that is so important. And it's not always rational. I've been thinking about this. Every time you and I talk about risk assessment, especially around kids, you bring up the fact that we worry more about kidnapping than car accidents. And that if we wanted to put our energy in a productive place around risk assessment with kids, we would all be way more into car seats and installing them properly and making sure our kids are sitting in them properly. And every time we talk about that, have you ever been bowling when they put bumpers in the gutters? Yeah. It is like the ball of the conversation hits one of those bumpers in my brain. And I've been considering why. Like, I just cannot get wrapped up in car seats. It's I can physically feel that, like, resistance to what you're saying every time we talk about it. Because I am very into car seats. You are very into car seats. And I just, I can't get there. And I honestly think, even though I objectively agree with everything you're saying and know it's right, I honestly think I've got some kind of barrier because when I was in a fatal car crash, I had two small kids in the car. And I think there is something for me that cannot go to thinking about how awful it would have been if those kids had been hurt worse than they were. I just think there's Mm. some kind of block there that I haven't gotten past. That is not something that is unique to me, I think, in assessing risk. I think we bring all kinds of things, conscious and unconscious, to these decisions. And while we're being transparent, the CDC has been consistently more conservative than I have been. In my individual risk assessment during the pandemic, I have felt from the beginning like the CDC was a little bit behind the scientist that I was following in terms of what are effective and reasonable precautions to take around COVID-19. So if I were getting a grade on my compliance with CDC standards throughout the pandemic, I'd probably get about a B minus. And I'm okay with that. That doesn't mean that I think the CDC has been stupid, wrong, the worst needs to be disbanded. And it doesn't mean that I think people who have been an A-plus with the CDC are neurotic or anxious or anything else. It's just, I think we always have to be considering, like, there is information and then there is individual assessment. And how do we meld those together in a way that feels both socially responsible and individually realistic? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I think that part of the reason this guidance didn't hit me as hard is because I have not been the person like waiting for the okay from the CDC on every single thing because I do feel like they are slow. And the people I trust, for the record, Zanep Tufeci came out and said, what are you doing? We should have kept masks on for a little bit longer, even though she has repeatedly criticized the CDC for being too slow. So there, there's, I also have enormous empathy for the CDC. So because you know somebody over there is being like, we can't make you people happy. And We're they either too slow or they too can't. fast. That's right. It is impossible. <laughs> and, right. and here's the other thing. I have been out since this guidance was released. I am perfectly happy to keep my mask on indoors yeah. right now. If it's still on the door of the business, I'm not trying to make anybody's life hard. That's right. If you have a do- sign on the door of your business that says mask, I'm wearing a mask, even though I don't think I have any real risk factors, to be honest. Again, definitely not trying to make any poor person at Walmart's life hard or small business or whatever. And if I am out with my kids, I will wear my mask. And I'm not looking to take my kids to like a... 200 person indoor wedding right now. No. Because while I also think the risk or for them. Ever. Right, yeah, seriously. <laughs> just because that's not fun. But, you know, while I also agree that I'm I'm not tremendously worried about my two kids' risks around COVID, they go to school with kids who I do worry about. And mm-hmm. they socialize with kids who I do worry about. And so I am still working hard to minimize their risk and exposure because that collective mindset has sunk in with me. And I'll probably yeah. forever change a lot of my behaviors because I'll be thinking more about public health. And and that's good. I, that's what I want to do, kind of going back to our episode a few weeks ago. I want to integrate yes. this into my life in a healthy way. Yeah, and I think that that 100%. I'm, look, I'm always trying to get people to think more collectivist mindset. Like, I think that that is really positive. And there is, you know, an aspect of this that as long as there is COVID-19 out there as a virus circulating, there is a aspect of collectivist thinking we have to maintain, and it is going to stay out there. And we should make bring, I wish we would bring more of that to the flu season. I'm going to wear a mask next cold and flu season. I really, really liked not getting strep throat, like a lot, because strep throat sucks. And so like not getting it for the first year and probably five years was fantastic. I'm going to maintain that. And I think that that sort of, in, like you said, integrating that and thinking about, I hope we all are better at thinking about public health as exactly what it is, P- the health of the public and not just our own individual choices in health at every second. Because there are a lot of places that we could use this thinking, whether it comes to clean water, clean air, our use of plastics, you know, the food system. Like there's a lot of places where we could use a more collectivist mindset about our choices and how they affect the health, safety, and lives of our fellow citizens. 100%. So I am not mad at the CDC. I think the communication mm-hmm. and coordination here was poor, and I expected better of this administration. And I yeah, also think I just, that what they said is true. Yeah. We just love you. We want better for you. <laughs> I'll tell you what I am frustrated by. I am frustrated that so many state and local governments have concluded that vaccine passports aren't worth the effort. I am frustrated that we seem to have just given up on widespread testing. By this point, why do I not have a box of rapid tests in my kitchen to make sure before we go somewhere where we're going to see a lot of people that none of us have COVID? Like, there are so many things that we could still be doing to help the comfort level of parents, to help the comfort level of immunocompromised people, to help people who can't get vaccinated. And we've just given up because it's too hard and all we're doing is leaning into the mask thing. That really upsets me. 
Well, I will say this on the other side of the testing. Here would be my concern if we leaned into testing like that, which is the Yankee situation. So for those of you who haven't heard, the Yankees, like the baseball team, they all got Johnson & Johnson. They were in this situation and they were tested and like eight of them had asymptomatic COVID. Okay. So again, not to just that we need a bingo card and he needs to have Ezra Klein's and Neptu Fetchy, Tressie McMillan Cotton, and y'all can just fill it out every time. But so Neptu Fetchy wrote about this and she said, here's the issue. They're taking really, really sensitive tests constantly as a part of the testing protocol within baseball. And so it is not surprising that they were carrying the virus And that they were also symptomatic because the vaccines were asymptomatic because the vaccines work. And so my fear is like if we were doing that because people cannot, cannot keep the peace with these breakthrough cases. Like I agree with her. I wish the media would stop carrying them because I think or covering them because I think that they increase vaccine hesitancy. People cannot hold the complexities of what happens with. And this sounds like exactly the opposite of what I usually argue with public health, which is trust people with the information and they can make the risk assessment themselves. But I do worry that with vaccine hesitancy, if we were doing all that testing and we were seeing like because vaccines don't prevent you from ever coming in contact with COVID or any or taking any of that viral load into your body. It just makes your body so efficient at fighting it that it doesn't turn into a severe case. Right. But I just think that that level is of complexity. I'm not a little worried that that would get through if we were testing all the time and people were like, I have COVID even though I have the vaccine. I feel like that both makes and undermines my point. It makes me mad that the Yankees are able to test three times a day and mm-hmm. I don't have a test in my kitchen if I need to travel somewhere. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, I, I wish that I think you're totally right that we have people who would overuse it. But I don't think that is such a large percentage of the population that we should have given up on that effort, the way that I feel we've given up. Now, hopefully somebody out there is developing something that's going to come to market soon and all my fears about this are going to be alleviated. But especially when we get kids back in school in the fall, we should have tests at home to use once a week or something. I, I get that, you know, I objectively know that my pillow is disgusting, right? I objectively know that at any given time, there are millions of microorganisms floating around my body. I cannot think about it too much. It it is exhausting. And so I don't want to look every day to see if I have any trace of COVID. But some guidance, especially to parents, hey, these are your tests. You're going to take them Monday morning. If there are symptoms, you're going to take them later in the week. If not, you're going to wait till the next Monday. That seems to me like such a reasonable way to try to move the ball down the field here. And I think that could also erode some of this sense of, do we trust each other? I don't really trust anybody. I don't trust these people Mm. who I live with. That is going to kill us, you guys. We in America already did not need more of that suspicion of one another. Mm -hmm. If we are going to do that worse now because people are taking their masks off, I am worried about that. Well, not to just continue to pile on here, but I think part of the reason the testing is problematic is because our quarantine policy is broken. Yeah, we have to fix that, too. Yeah, the really good writing recently that we were using a sledgehammer where a scalpel would do, and it was damaging, and it was making people go out when they knew they had COVID because the quarantine policy was so ridiculous. And, you know, I think that that's the problem, too. Like, we don't really have a good quarantine, like a good, very focused 
and scientifically based quarantine policy. And until we get that figured out, what good is the testing going to be? Because the people would not get tested because they didn't want to get under the 14-day quarantine, which lots of scientists and epidemiologists are now saying was overkill. So I think that's the problem, too. It's like, and look, I'm listen, if it's this, you get three things in a pandemic, testing, tracing, or vaccines, which do you want to focus on? Let me be clear. I am so glad the United States focused on vaccines. I am. But I don't think it's it, now that we've gotten the vaccines, to your point, I don't think all it like all is lost. OK, so we still have energy and focus. Let's direct it back to contact tracing and testing, because the next thing that comes along, even though we can develop a vaccine quickly with this new tech, I sure would like to be where Korea or Japan was, where they could really tightly contain it and quarantine people for the next one so that it doesn't, you know, I love the quote that it's like we sat, we we wanted, we didn't want our freedom restricted, but in the end it was a massive restriction of freedom because the pandemic stretched on for so long. I would definitely like to be there, but I think that that's part of the problem too. And there is a piece of me on the other side of all this, which I realize we're not there yet, but on the other side of all this, I am okay with asking is the United States just a country that can't do something like masks? So we have to lean mm. harder into other strategies. That makes me sad because it seems like such a simple thing. And I don't really get it. I haven't from the beginning gotten people's resistance to it. But if that is the reality, I don't want to survive another pandemic in sort of. And that's what yeah. we did with this. We have done sort of measures all over the place. And, and if we needed to be more realistic about what Americans will and won't accept then I think we ought to start looking more at testing and vaccine passports. Now, we do have a moment of hope we wanted to share surrounding COVID and vaccines and the next cold and flu season, which is Emily Oster did an interview with Stefan Bonsal, the CEO of Moderna. And there was one particular piece of this interview that you and I were like, praise the Lord. We love the sound of this. So much. So Emily Oster asked him what he's most excited about. And he was sharing that, you know, we all know this. The efficacy of the flu vaccine is about 60 percent in a good year, only 30 percent in a bad year. But they believe with mRNA, they could do a booster with both the COVID variants and seasonal strains of the flu that could get the world to 90 to 95 percent efficacy for flu. Oh, my Lord, that is a Amazing. I really enjoyed not getting the flu this year. And if we could get a booster shot that contains both COVID and flu booster so we don't have to get the flu, that would be so awesome. And to the point of many of our friends who uh, have not taken COVID very seriously, the flu does kill people also. It would mm -hmm. be a magnificent life-saving thing to be able to inoculate in a, in a really meaningful way against the flu. So I'm excited about this also. Next up, we're going to talk with Carrie Anderson, who is an expert on policy in Western Asia. Carrie has spent time, significant amounts of time, physically in Israel, physically in West Bank and Gaza. So she is going to talk with us about the big picture perspective on what's going on there. I fear that by the time this episode airs, the number of casualties, the buildings that have been destroyed, that everything that we know today will be even worse. And so hopefully Carrie can help all of us understand more about why and who is involved and how this might ultimately resolve. 
If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive and Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second-chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsy. As we continue to think about the situation unfolding between Israelis and Palestinians, it was important to us to consider the big picture context of Western Asia, the historic relationship between these countries, 
how this is playing throughout the world. And so we have with us our beloved Mm-hmm. Western Asia correspondent, Carrie Anderson. <laughs> Carrie, thank you so much for joining us again. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. So you have spent a significant amount of time in this region. And I'm wondering if, as we enter this conversation, you could help us just understand, for those of us who have not spent time here, what a normal day looks like, specifically thinking of Gaza because of the population density there. I'm not sure most of us have a lot of perspective on what it feels like to be in Gaza. And I'm wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. Sure. And yeah, I think it is important to think about a normal day would vary between are you a Palestinian in Gaza? Are you an Israeli in Israel? Are you a Palestinian in the West Bank? Um, So for Gaza, of course, Gaza is an extremely densely crowded place. I'm not sure this is still true, but it used to be the the most crowded entity on earth. Um, So we're talking about a whole lot of people crowded into a very small area. They are, there's the sea, and then there are big walls around the rest of the Gaza Strip. Many of these people are refugees. You have generations of refugees the infrastructure in Gaza was was never great after the 2014 war with Israel and the blockade of Gaza. The infrastructure is very, very bad. So you do not have reliable electricity. There are all sorts of problems with access to clean water. Unemployment is extremely high. It's very difficult to run a, a business. So it's it's tough. It's a tough place. Gaza on a normal day is a tough place to live. And most of these people have absolutely no way out. You know, Israel, of course, is a very different place to live on a, a daily basis. And of course, it's important to recognize there are Jewish Israelis, there are Arab Israelis. There is a huge diversity. I think it's really important to recognize both Palestinian and Israeli societies are really diverse. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one thing that's always made them so interesting to me is there's a lot of internal diversity. Um, and of course, the West Bank you would have Palestinians, and then you would also have Israeli settlers. So life in the West Bank, if you're Palestinian, is also difficult. There are a lot of problems, a lot of obstacles to running business, to working, to getting around the West Bank. But it is not, it doesn't really compare to Gaza at all. If I had to choose between the two, I would definitely choose the West Bank. Tell us the political situation before this violence kicked off and then quickly escalated? Because there were a lot of domestic politics at play for both Israelis and Palestinians. The Israelis are, what, on their fourth election in two years. There was a suspension of Palestinian elections. Tell us what the political situation was before all of this happened. Yeah, so the immediate um, run-up, and I think we can maybe talk a little bit later about it is important to take a big picture look at kind of mm-hmm. the root causes. But if we're talking about, say, the couple of months and the run up to this latest flare up, there were several things happening. So both Israeli and Palestinian politics have are in a state of flux. As you said, Israel in uh, I think it was end of March or early April had its fourth election in two years. Uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu tried and failed again to put together a coalition. And so then uh, the leader of a different party, Jair Lapid, was working on forming a new coalition when all of this happened. 
we can talk more later if you want about there are that all definitely plays a role in what's going on mm-hmm. right now on the Palestinian side. <clears throat> so the Palestinians haven't had a presidential election since 2005. They have not had legislative elections since 2006. And Palestinians are really fed up with all the leadership, <laughs> like Hamas and Gaza, the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank. Um, and so there was quite a lot of pressure to hold new elections, which were then in January, they announced that they would be holding new elections this year. But shortly before all of this flared up, they indefinitely postponed those elections. So that also plays a role. A bunch of the other critical factors in this is, um, of course, there was the issue of the evictions of it's at least 36 families and Sheikh Jarrah, which is a uh, sort of a it's a neighborhood in East Jerusalem. And uh, we can get more into the complexities of that as well. This is not new. This is an ongoing situation, but it was a particular milestone that there was going to be this eviction of these families. And that represents a lot more to Palestinians than just the eviction of a few families, which is still a big deal. Mm -hmm. So that was going on. We, of course, have had the pandemic. (laughs) Um, Israel is one of the most vaccinated countries in the world, and life in Israel in many ways is back to normal. That is not true for the Palestinians who have not had the same kind of access to vaccines. It was Ramadan. We just a few days ago had Eid. And so some of this came to a head when Israel put some restrictions on who could go to pray at the Al-Aqsa Mosque and on some typical Eid celebrations at Damascus Gate. All of this coincided with Jerusalem Day, which is a time when certain Israelis celebrate the 1967 takeover of East Jerusalem. There's some other stuff going on, but you can kind of see it's it's a it was like a perfect storm. Mm. So we got all of this violence in Jerusalem. And then Hamas was kind of like, well, hey, what about us? And so then Hamas started launching a bunch of rockets because they always want to make it about them. And Israel responded. So that's kind of shows you kind of how this all snowballed into this incredible violence that we're seeing right now. Well, and quickly, I've read a lot about the current domestic situation with, you know, and Netanyahu, which we didn't even mention, is currently on trial for corruption charges. That there's been a, an empowerment, like a sort of a political empowerment of some of the far right, very nationalistic political groups in Israel. Do you agree with that? Have you have you seen that? Yeah. So I think there's a couple of things here. Part of this is a long term trend. Israeli politics have shifted very much more to the right in the last 20 years. So that's that's a long term trend reflecting quite a few things that have happened in Israeli society. Um, but also right now. This is politically advantageous for Netanyahu. And um, even Jair Lapid, who was trying to form a new coalition recently, this is not an exact quote, but he said something that basically was like, there's always a fire whenever it's in Netanyahu's interests. Mm. And that's true. Well, and that's a big deal to sort of like exhibit any sort of domestic disagreement in the midst of violence, right? That doesn't usually happen in Israel. I was surprised to see that quote. I think it represents some quite serious frustration because this is not the first time that stuff like this has happened at a time that is very much in Netanyahu's interests. Mm -hmm. As you said, he is on trial for corruption. He has been trying to put together a coalition and and failed. And everything that's happened looks like it's going to 
really, so the efforts to put together a coalition under Jerry Lapide are now basically halted because mm-hmm. that really depended on having at least one of the Arab Israeli parties in the coalition, which itself is quite unusual, maybe unprecedented. But now that we're seeing this violence within Israel between Jewish Israelis and Arab Israelis, there's sort of a sense that, well, that can't happen now. So it's quite possible that Israel will end up with a fifth election coming up. And I mean, at what point does this become a constitutional crisis? At what point do we say there is no government to be formed? I've been wondering that with every election, and it just keeps going on and going on and going on. I mean, that's a great question. I think there are a lot of Israelis answering that. Yeah, I don't have a creative answer to it. Can you orient us in Israeli politics for a minute? When we say far right in Israel, what are we talking about? So it can mean different things. A big part of that is relations with the Palestinians. So it's a very hawkish perspective. And and part of that comes from the collapse of the Oslo Accords. So there were there were Israelis. Um, and they, the Oslo Accords are always controversial within Israeli society. Netanyahu was never a fan. But there were Israelis who supported the two-state solution and supported the Oslo Accords. When the Oslo Accords collapsed, the Israeli perspective was that that was completely the fault of the Palestinians. Um, I will say the Palestinian perspective was, of course, very different. But so I think a lot of Israelis felt kind of betrayed and, and gave up on that. And so I think today, a lot more Israelis are okay with this kind of indefinite occupation than was true 20 years ago. So that is a part of the shift to the right. There are other factors there that have to do specifically with Israeli internal politics, too. So that's kind of a helpful orientation to Israeli politics. Can you talk more about people who are just coming to understand the situation about Palestinian governance? I worry sometimes, even in my own language, Mm -hmm. that I am sort of putting Hamas on equal footing with the Palestinian Authority, that I lose the fact that there are Muslim, Palestinians, Christian, Palestinians, you know, that there is not a monolith here, that they're not even geographically contiguous. So can you just talk a little bit about who makes decisions on the Palestinian side and why? Well, and I think just to add on to that, I think it gets confusing because we're talking about governments, but then we're advocating for a two-state solution. And I think there's a sense of like, how do we have a government if there's no state? Absolutely. And I think that's a really critical, I think any time you're looking at anything to do with the Palestinians, we have to understand they don't have sovereignty. That's just a kind of fundamental <laughs> starting point. Yeah, and it it is confusing. So I'll try to explain it in a kind of basic way. But So if we go back to the Oslo Accords. So before the Oslo Accords, the Palestinians had no governance over themselves in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. That was completely... All forms of governments were essentially provided by Israel, mostly. Then with the Oslo Accords, you had the creation of the Palestinian Authority, and that was based on the premise that we are working toward two states. And so Palestinians, there there were elections. There were actually like pretty free and fair elections for a while where they elected their um, president, their own legislature, and that was the Palestinian Authority. And that Palestinian Authority today still has certain governance responsibilities in parts of the West Bank. Where it gets confusing is that even if we set aside Gaza for a minute, the Palestinian Authority does not govern a contiguous territory in the West Bank. There are enclaves, so they, they, the Oslo Accords of the areas A, B, and C. 
Um, and basically, the Palestinian Authority has uh, governance authority in areas A, which tend to be more urban areas. There's kind of mixed Israeli and Palestinian authority in areas B. And then there's areas C, which are controlled still by Israel. And all of this, if you look at the map, it's crazy. <laughs> it is not contiguous at all. Israel controls any kind of roadblocks between like areas A, B, and C. So if you just imagine you're a Palestinian business person and you want to move goods simply within the West Bank, that's really complicated. If you want to go visit your family in one part of West Bank to another part of the West Bank for Eid, that's really complicated. And we're not talking about a big space anyway. That's kind of the situation in the West Bank. There's also East Jerusalem, which Israel considers... Israel says that it has sovereignty over East Jerusalem and it annexed East Jerusalem, though most um, countries don't recognize that. And East Jerusalem is a mix of uh, Palestinians who have kind of a weird status and, and Jewish Israelis. Then you have the Gaza Strip. And for a while, the Palestinian Authority was in charge. So, so Israel used to have settlements there. They pulled all of those out a while ago and basically handed over governance to the Palestinian Authority. But in 2006, in a, an election, um, Hamas won that election, and that gets super complicated, but basically there was a war between the Palestinian Authority and Hamas, and Hamas won in Gaza. So Hamas basically governs Gaza. So that's, it's actually more complicated than that. <laughs> that gives you kind of a sense of how complex all of this is. Well, and many nations, including our own, categorize Hamas as a terrorist organization, correct? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And it, it, it is. Yeah. And I think that's that's the other confusing part when we're talking about elections and, like Beth said, like distinguishing between Hamas and the Palestinian Authority. I think it just gets really, really complicated. And let's just further complicate this and add some layers of understanding around the surrounding Region, You know, my sense of this, and tell me if I'm wrong, is it feels part of what has happened in the region that has fueled this current conflict is the Trump administration's approach to the the Abraham Accords and to negotiations in the regions, which felt to me like it was just meant to completely break the backs of the Palestinian people, to exclude them from the negotiations, to bring in more countries, and to ju it just felt like it was backing them into a corner. Am I just am I reading that all wrong? Yeah. So the Trump administration approach was to accept that might is right. Israel won. The Palestinians need to accept that they've lost. They need to surrender their hopes for kind of their own national identity or even sort of basic civil liberties in exchange, except a little bit of money. And that was never a realistic approach. And absolutely, I think if you look at both the cutting off of aid to the Palestinians, the, the moving the embassy to Jerusalem, um, several other steps that the Trump administration took, the, the effort was to essentially kind of break any will or any hope that the Palestinians kind of had for a future state or something. And then they also pursued the Abraham Accords. And I think like, I think you did look at those two different ways. One is, yes, it was trying to further destroy any leverage the Palestinians might have because there's such a massive power disparity here in this conflict. And one way that the Palestinians can try to balance that out a little bit is through alliances and support from other Arab states, which to be honest, 
have not been great about that. But so by getting deals between like Israel and the UAE and Israel and Bahrain and Israel and Morocco and a couple of others to have normal relations with Israel without Israel really having to give up anything seriously um, in terms of Palestinians, that was a big goal of the Trump administration. Um, now, you could also argue that peace deals are good and it's good for like Israel to have normal relations with other Arab countries. So I think there's a couple different ways to to look at that. But for sure, part of it was to undermine some of the, the little leverage left that the Palestinians had. And what's the end game on that? Is it to strengthen Israel as a counterforce to Iran in the region? Or what would, what do you perceive as the Trump administration's goal here? I think the Trump administration you know, had a lot of senior people in it who really fundamentally believe that Israel should should be in charge of the West Bank and that the West Bank should be settled by Jewish Israelis. And whether you have you know, members like our then Secretary of State, Mark Pompeo, who are coming out of that from a sort of evangelical Christian viewpoint, or whether you have somebody like Jared Kushner, who is coming at that from a specific Jewish American viewpoint. You know, I think that was a big role. I think, yeah, Iran played a bit of that. I think the UAE joined into the Abraham Accords because of Iran. But I think within the Trump administration, there is an, there was an ideological perspective that we kind of wish the Palestinians would just go away and be quiet and Israel should just control all of this land. And when I mentioned Kushner, I also want to be clear within the American mm-hmm. Jewish community, there is a diverse range of perspectives on this issue. So just because Jerry Kushner held a particular one doesn't mean that everybody else does. I know in the past when conflict has escalated, Jordan has sometimes been involved. And I have been reading that the relationship between Netanyahu and Jordan specifically is pretty strained. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, the relationship between Israel and Jordan is always strained. Obviously, they they have a peace treaty. They've had a peace treaty for a long time. So, of course, Israel was created in 1948. And the creation of Israel... And the displacement of Palestinians are inextricably linked. These are these are two things together. So in nineteen forty-eight, there were Palestinians who fled what was the original state of Israel, and many of them fled into the West Bank and Jordan. And Jordan at the time, and this is all very complicated, we can get into it more, but effectively what happened with the 1948 war was that Jordan controlled what is today Jordan. It also controlled the West Bank and it controlled East Jerusalem. So the West Bank is called the West Bank because it's the West Bank of the Jordan River and was part of Jordan at the time. And then with 1967 war, of course, Israel then occupied all of Jerusalem, including East Jerusalem and also then the West Bank. Eventually, there was a peace treaty. And as part of that, Jordan still plays a role in not really governing the old city of Jerusalem, but it still plays a role in kind of managing uh, the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Haram al-Sharif, which is on top of uh, what Israelis would call the Temple Mount. So Jordan still plays a role there. Um but it's kind of it's complicated because a lot of the a majority of Jordanians are Palestinian. So Palestinians play a major role in Jordanian politics. So it's always been kind mm. of a cold piece. 
Referencing that long history, I think is important. You made a really important point to us before we started this conversation, which is that it's really important to keep in mind that both of these populations are traumatized, that, you know, that the formation of Israel is inextricably linked to the Holocaust and the belief that the Jewish population would never be truly safe without the formation of a state. The Palestinian population is traumatized by the formation of that state. They're still one of the world's biggest refugee populations, not mentioned the loss of life and the trauma of displacement over these decades. And I just think, you know, it's not that we are comparing those traumas and making them equal. But I just, you know, one of our listeners said, I just, how am I supposed to find nuance with the decision making in Israel? And I said, for me, you know, I cannot, the nuance comes because I cannot and will not separate conversations about the formation of Israel from the Holocaust. And I think that the formation of that state and the trauma it placed on the Palestinian people has been for many decades, particularly in American policy, just sort of ignored. And I know that recognizing both of those is complicated, but I think that we have learned that ignoring them is even worse. Yeah, absolutely. I I really think this is really essential to understanding the conflict and to having empathy with both sides. And it's even Mm -hmm. oversimplifying it to say the many, many sides. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, Israel was formed. So, So Zionism, which is the idea that the Israeli people need their own state that Mm -hmm. existed before the Holocaust and reflected the experience Mm -hmm. of of pogroms and and Russia and Eastern Europe and, you know, the many other ways in which the Jewish people suffered violence and discrimination, you know, particularly in Europe. And then of course we have the Holocaust, which, you know, Zionists until then were having trouble convincing a lot of Jews that they should move to Palestine But the Holocaust made it really, really obvious to Jewish people that the argument the Zionists were making, that the Jewish people would never be safe if they didn't have their own land, their own government and their own defense. That became a very easy argument to make after the Holocaust. And I think it's essential to understand there is a massive power disparity between the Israelis and Palestinians, which you can get into more. But a lot of Israelis Mm -hmm. don't see it that way. They see themselves as a small group of people standing against a world that wants to annihilate them. And they see, you know, the, that the best defense is a good offense. And so they they hit hard in Gaza. That That's intentional. That, that comes from a sense of we are these people whose very survival is at risk. And so if you hit us, we're going to hit you back way harder. So make sure you never hit us again. And And that's what's driving a lot of that on the Israeli side, you know, the, the Palestinians also have suffered a lot of trauma. I was in Israel during Israel's national day one time and when, when they, they celebrate 1948 and the creation of Israel. And it's great fun. I thoroughly enjoy those celebrations, but I also felt kind of guilty about it because for my Palestinian mm. friends, that's the Nakba. That's the catastrophe. That's the day that their community fell apart. That's the first wave of refugees. Palestinians in the first experience of displacement. And there's massive Palestinian trauma, too, both from what the Palestinians have endured in the West Bank and Gaza, but also from what Palestinian refugees have endured elsewhere. I mean, Lebanon in particular, where Palestinian refugees are subjected to incredible violence during the Lebanese civil war. 
So there's so much trauma on both sides. And I do make clear, mm-hmm. I'm not trying to equate those traumas. These are not equal traumas. I don't think kind of anything can equal the Holocaust. But just because somebody's trauma is more than we somebody else's. We condone every action, right? Exactly. And I, I do think, I think Beth was saying the other day, you're talking about when our identities are threatened. We are dangerous. When a traumatized person's identity is threatened, they are dangerous. And both groups in this conflict are deeply traumatized and their identities. I mean, this is an identity conflict. This isn't a religious conflict. This isn't an ancient conflict. This is a conflict of identity, nationalism and land. And religion plays a role, but that's not the main issue here. And both fundamentally Palestinian and Israelis' identity directly threaten each other. And that is the hard, hard, hard thing here. They're not just physical threats to each other. They threaten, their very existence threatens each other's identities. And that seems to me to be so connected with how personalized the violence Mm -hmm. is that's happening right now. We hear a lot of stories, not just of bombs and rockets, but of really one-on-one, two-on-one kind of conflict happening. And I wonder, Carrie, if you think that is because we're talking about like, actually, do I have a house to live in? Is this my spot? If it is just pandemic related? I mean, I could think of a hundred reasons that that would be. And I wonder what your perspective is. Yeah, it's so hard. Well, so here, maybe let me kind of make an artificial division between what's happening in the territories in Jerusalem versus what's happening up between Israeli Arabs and Jewish Israelis. So, you know, I mean, there's been a specific attempt to separate Gaza from Israel. So it used to be that a lot of Palestinians from Gaza would go and work in Israel. That hasn't been the case for quite a long time now. So a lot of Israelis don't really have to deal with Palestinians in Gaza, except when Hamas launches rockets. Um, The West Bank and East Jerusalem and Israel are, there's still interaction there, though. The the wall that Israel has built in the West Bank and other policies have clearly tried to separate Palestinians in West Bank more from Israel than used to be the case. But these are societies that have a natural interaction with each other a lot of the time. And it does make that personal element difficult. Um, In the West Bank, you have Israeli settlers and Palestinians frequently interacting in hostile ways. Then within Israeli society, we have Jewish Israelis and Arab Israelis. So Arab Israelis are Palestinians. They are Palestinians who did not leave in 1948 and were given Israeli citizenship. They account for one-fifth of the Israeli population. They do have citizenship. They have mostly had equal legal rights. That's kind of changed recently. They have suffered from systemic discrimination. Um, And then in 2018, Israel passed the nation state law, which quite specifically downgraded Israeli Arabs status. Um, It downgraded uh, Arabic was no longer the primary official language. And I took some other important steps. So the Arab-Israeli situation where right now we're seeing this mob violence and certain places between Jewish Israelis and Arab Israelis. And this is 
really deeply personal one-on-one violence between neighbors in a lot of cases. So in some cases, there's been situations where people are coming from outside the town to participate in the violence. But there has been some really, really deep violence between neighbors. And that's extremely concerning to a lot of people. It very much, I think, does reflect the sort of decades of systemic discrimination that Arab Israelis have faced, as well as you know, it was, we were talking earlier about the shift to the right in Israeli politics. And this is another part of it. Um, when I was first in the region over 20 years ago, a lot of, there were definitely Israelis who would have said, well, Israel is for Jews and not anybody else. But there were a lot of Israelis who would have said, oh, yeah, Arab Israelis are totally one of us, too, and they're equal. And um, that's kind of shifted. I mean, that really became clear with the 2018 law that really said, no, Israel is a state for Jewish Israelis and Hebrew is more important than Arabic and and other things. So I think we're seeing a real outpouring of frustration there. I think the pandemic plays in all of this, too. And I just think everything's more unstable. So what do you see as the sort of the objectives for this current round of violence, you know, could this end soon? Do you think the U.S. has a role to play here? What is the end game? <sighs> I don't know. Yeah, I don't think anybody does. I think that's what's so hard. That's what's so hard. And I think the U.S. absolutely has a role to play because we need to accept that we we do and always have played a role in supporting Israel. Mm-hmm. Israel is the biggest recipient by far of military and other forms of aid over the years. The Palestinians are very well aware <laughs> of that. We are not a neutral actor in this. And and mm-hmm. so I think to try to, I think the administration right now is kind of trying to play this well. We're worried about suffering on both sides. We staunchly support Israel and the two-state solution. And like, we're just, we're so far beyond that. That, that I think is very 20 years ago thinking. Um, I think it ignores the reality that, Things have moved far beyond that. It ignores the reality that the U.S. has never played a neutral role in this conflict. And mm-hmm. we can talk about why, whether it's good or bad, but that's just a reality. I also think, you know, this gets into a whole other discussion about the two-state solution, which I'll just briefly say personally, I, I used to really feel like that was the best option. It was a flawed option for sure. But I felt like that is the best way for most Israelis to really get what they want and the best way for most Palestinians to really get what they want. It is a tragedy to me that I think that is no longer a realistic possibility. Mm. And I would very, very much like to see U.S. policy move beyond this kind of knee-jerk, oh, we support this new state solution, when, like, nobody really thinks that's, I mean, I don't think many Israelis or Palestinians think that's going to work anymore. And even within the Washington foreign policy community, I mean, that used to be like an absolute article of faith. And, and even that's changing. Nathan Brown at the Carnegie Endowment had a really good piece about this recently. And I think we're really seeing an acceptance that that's just not a, a thing that's going to happen anymore. And I think that's incredibly sad, but I think that's a reality. Do you mean like there is no path forward for a state for the Palestinian people? I think there is no longer a path forward for a Palestinian state and an Israeli mm. state side by side. I just mm. think the the settlements in the West Bank have expanded too much. And, and the settlements have an entire infrastructure around them, too. There's a road infrastructure and other things there. I don't see how it's ever going to be 
rolled back. And, and the wall that's built, the wall was not built along the 1967 border. I mean, it's built in the West Bank um, in many cases. And I think it's just the facts on the ground no longer support a functioning, viable Palestinian entity there. So I just, I, I think it's really hard to see how to move beyond that. I don't have any creative solutions. <laughs> I wish mm. I did. That's a heartbreaking note to end on, but I don't have any other questions. Do you, Beth? Mm-mm, I don't. Thank you, Carrie. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online, and we were discussing the fact that I am 43, and she said, I cannot believe how young you look, and I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered shower head purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15.
We know that's a difficult spot to end the interview. We want to thank Carrie for bringing all the complexity and empathy and um, difficultness of this conversation to the issue here on our podcast. Sarah, just processing that interview for a second, I want to share that I have felt just in knots about this situation. And I want to try to say as clearly as possible what I think about it right now. And I'm interested to hear where you are. I think that Israel has such a disproportionate amount of weaponry and power here and that the way Israel is choosing to use it, knowing about how densely populated Gaza is, knowing that even if you can very precisely target your bomb, civilians are going to die. And that is the reporting that almost everyone who's died so far is a civilian. I think Israel has a great responsibility to find a way to end this. And I think that it is disincentivized to do that right now because of Prime Minister Netanyahu's political fortunes. And I think that is a gross abuse of power. And I think that it is wrong for the United States to impede the United Nations calling for a ceasefire. And I'm happy to see so many U.S. senators and House members saying so. And I also fear pouring anti-Semitic sentiment or sentiment that could grow into anti-Semitic sentiment on top of the white nationalist fire that is already smoldering in America. And I fear losing the history and the real concerns of Jewish people, not just in Israel, but across the globe, in having a clear discussion of the responsibilities in this region right now. And so I just, I have probably been more timid in my statements about this than a lot of our audience wants. It is because I am watching Asian Americans be brutalized on subways and the streets of America over COVID-19 having originated in some still unknown way in China. And seeing how quickly we can go from a tiny piece of incomplete information to personal hatred and violence, I do not want to be part of creating more of that. You know, we talk about on Pansy Politics all the time that our central sort of orienting value and principle is we do not dehumanize. Even when villainizing seems so easy and so simple and absolutely the right thing to do when we look around at people who think and talk and act and believe the same things we do. And there is sort of an easy path to villainization. Understanding that criticism and negotiation and pressure are not villainizing. And I think that because of the complexities Carrie lays out so well, because of the history of both the Palestinian people and the Israeli people and the world population of Jewish people, that simplifying the situation is is not the path forward. It is enormously complicated. And when we simplify, even under the best motives— 
that that has a ripple effect, right? Even if we are holding the complexities for ourselves, but articulating something that we think is a simple moral position in this issue, it doesn't stay within the boundaries sort of of our own mind, right? We are influencing other people. Our opinions and our expressions of those opinions ripple out in good ways and in bad. And I think centering the complexity of this situation always and the understanding that it affects human beings, both Palestinian and Israeli, on the ground every day is difficult. It's why, you know, the end of our interview with Carrie is so heartbreaking But anyone who is selling you anything different than this is heartbreaking and complex and almost impossible is selling, not analyzing. And I just think that we have to really, really keep that front of mind always. Fraught Part 3, Outside of Politics Edition. Okay, Sarah, I want to go back to church and the the sermon that pressed all my buttons as I was not experiencing anything approaching silence. I just wanted to talk to you about this because you and I have been in places before where we have talked about, like, there are so many distractions, things get very overwhelming, we need to take breaks, we need to detach from our technology, etc. And I feel like it's time for an update of that conversation because, and, you know, I can't detach this from pandemic life and all the changes to life that have happened over the past year or so. So whether it's that, whether it's the ages of my kids, whether it's just natural personal development, the things that were characterized in this sermon and that I often characterize as distractions myself. So again, this is not a critique of the sermon, just thinking through how I took it in. Podcasts, music, videos, magazines, books, etc., Those are the ways that I come home to myself right now. Mm -hmm. Those are the things that draw me back into having some of my own thoughts, the kind of thoughts that are connected to whether for you it's faith, morality, whatever. It is really easy for me to experience God as I think of it in, in terms of my personal faith in silence. I think it's why I love my yoga mat so much. That is when I feel the the closest to prayer that I get. Because it's silent, and I do think it's a a wonderful, important, rich experience. And also, it is really hard to come by in my life right now. And so where else do I have that kind of meaningful encounter with something bigger than me? It is often by putting my headphones on while I'm cooking dinner, folding laundry, taking a walk, doing something else that invites me into bigger questions. And... I kind of want to take back some of some of my stridents about this earlier because I, I really have shifted in terms of what I would classify as a distraction versus what I would classify as a, a deeply meaningful part of my human experience. Listen, I love silence. I often drive in my car with no noise. In fact, I would say that's the majority of time that I spend in my car by myself. There is no other audio on. I spend time in my house. My house is very blessedly quiet during the day when all my people are gone. I would like to go on that silent retreat at the monastery in central Kentucky. Like I love, I'd really truly love silence. And also I'm just done with should. You know, I wear this bracelet. We've talked about it a lot. My word for the 2021 is gentle. And I think I'm just coming home to the 
best expression of gentleness on myself and others is just abandoning should. I can feel myself doing it, looking at my screen time updates or checking something, feeling distracted, and I can feel that voice firing up. You should do this. You should do that. You should do another tech Shabbat. You should, you should, you should. And just telling that voice respectfully to sit the hell down. Like, I am a shoulder. I should over myself. I should all over other people. But you know what? 2020, we all had way, way too much should. What Enough should to last us the rest of our lives. At least that's how I feel. And so I also find that when I can release that a little bit for myself, I find more space to do the things that are care and not should. Like I find more space to to rise to the occasion, to care for myself and for other people when I can let the should go. Because there are spaces where care is needed and it takes effort and it takes energy and it takes silence sometimes. And so I'm not saying that there aren't places where we sort of have to rise to the occasion and where we have to make sacrifices and where we have to, you know, not to lean on this this quippy line that I'm kind of getting tired of, but like do say have hard conversations, do hard things, the whole thing. Like I think that's important and I think there can be too much of a centering of our own needs. But I'm just the the should, the there's this this background of should that is that I think I'm seeing for the first time, but like for who? Like who am I shooting for? Why am I shooting <laughs> all over myself? And so I think that that for me is really is really key, whether it's about silence or distraction or exercise or therapy, journaling, meditating, just the long list of, and I didn't even get into like parenting shoulds, but I'm just trying to release that. I'm trying to teach my children that too, as I as I learn it myself. Yesterday, my girls really wanted pancakes for breakfast. And we've talked before about how on my doctor's recommendation, I'm eating gluten-free and dairy-free right now. So pancakes are like the epicenter of thing I cannot have. So I make them for everybody. And my girls are like, mom, why aren't you eating this? And Jane goes, oh, right, you can't. And I said, you know, Jane, I'm choosing not to. I think it's really helpful for me Every time I feel tempted to eat something that is not in this plan, to step back and say, I can eat it if I want to. Nothing is going to happen if I eat this pancake. Probably be fine, you know. And I'm just committed to this right now to see how it feels in my body. And so I'm choosing it. And it helps to remember all the time that we are making choices. And, you know, that framework has really helped me kind of get through the days that I haven't exercised or whatever, Mm -hmm. like I've chosen something else. In that way, it's very congruent with what the the sermon that I was resisting was about. Because part of the point was, if you spend lots of time in silence, it connects you to something larger than yourself, which puts everything into perspective and fills you up with love and fills you with greater love, like you were just saying, Sarah, for other people. And I do think it is necessary to find that greater love for yourself and that less should, more I desire or I commit. I think once you do that for yourself, it's much easier to do it for other people, much, much easier. Um, so it wasn't, uh, again, it wasn't at all that it was a bad sermon. I just also really value my my podcast and music time right now. Well, and I think the power of silence, be it meditation or in in many other ways, is that 
there is discomfort. And I think as much as we can practice and grow in our awareness and that not like a response instead of a reaction to discomfort, because the role of cell phones in my life and those like, quote unquote, distractions is when I want to not experience any discomfort. When I'm just numbing out and I'm like struggling with something and I don't want to spend a moment sitting with it and feeling that discomfort. And I think that that is the role of like silence and the negative impact of distraction. And I think in our relationships with each other, you know, I think we see that too, just the running from any discomfort. And as much as we can not lean into it every time, because sometimes there's a space where you're like, no, I don't have any, I don't have any left to lean into this discomfort right now. But even recognizing that and and saying like, well, maybe I'll I'll save up and I'll tackle it another day without just refusing to acknowledge its presence. That Listen, that's a massive amount of progress in my book. I think that might be the characterization that I was rejecting so strongly, though, because I listen to a lot of things. I take in a lot of what could be classified as distraction that challenges me, that does make me uncomfortable, it makes me think hard about things. Um, and so... You know, maybe some of this is just about curation. Like, what are you choosing to fill that non-silence with? I don't mean like all distraction is comfortable. No, I totally agree with that. I also take in a lot of content that is challenging. But I think there's something inherently challenging about being with your own thoughts. I have a lot of people in my own household who like, we have a lot of conversations about, I think this is what happens with sleep. Why people like, I have my husband and my eldest son listen to podcasts to go to sleep. And people watch TV to go to sleep. And then when you wake up in the middle of the night and you have to put yourself back to sleep, then you're stuck with that, like that really difficult thought pattern. I have a really bad habit now where I'm flipping on my stomach, which is terrible for my neck and back. But, man, it helps me calm those thoughts and go back to sleep. Something about that. And I think that that's what I'm talking about. It's like that the feeling of that just that went that running commentary in our heads can be exhausting and uncomfortable. And I think we have a damaging narrative where it's like, well, you should be present with those all the time, which I don't think is true. But I do think recognizing that like jerk reaction to like get away from them all the time can be positively impactful as well. Well, we appreciate you inviting us into your non-silent spaces Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. are so glad that you are here when we have conversations that are really tough, like all of the conversations we've had today have been. We hope that y'all have the best week available to you. We'll be back with you here on Friday. Pantsuit Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Megan Hart is our community engagement manager. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener supported. Special thanks to our executive producers. Martha Brunitsky. Linda Daniel. Allie Edwards. Janice Elliott. Sarah Greenup. Julie Haller. Helen Handley. Tiffany Hassler. Barry Kaufman. Molly Kors. The Creeps! Lori Ladau. Lily McClure. David McWilliams. Jared Minson. Emily Neasley. Danny Osmond. The Cousins! Tawny Peterson. Tracy Putoff. Sarah Ralph. Jeremy Sequoia. Karen True. Amy Whited, Joshua Allen, Morgan McHugh, Nicole Berkless, Paula Bremer, and Tim Miller. To support Pantsuit Politics and receive lots of bonus features, visit patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics.
You can also connect with us on our website, pantsuitpoliticsshow.com, sign up for our weekly newsletter, and follow us on Instagram at pantsuitpolitics.